Socialism, the failed idea that never dies. That's the name of a book by Dr. Christian Nemitz. Uh, Christian, have I pronounced that right? Yes, perfect. Fantastic. Christian is the head of political economy at London's Institute of Economic Affairs. Now, the Institute of Economic Affairs is a think tank. I guess it's comparable to uh, the New Zealand Initiative, a think tank that tackles uh, political ideas and economic ideas from a free market or a classical liberal perspective. Is that correct, Christian? That's spot on, yes. Great. Well, I'm really happy to have you on today because the title of your book is it's quite provocative, The Failed Idea That Never Dies, that is Socialism. And I think it's it's something that is the, it's the, these big picture motivational issues in politics that once you understand them, you begin to understand why political parties exist, why we have these divisions. Uh, and yet in day-to-day conversations, we don't really ask questions like, what is socialism and what is its track record? So I thought I'd start, Christian, by asking you to make the elevator pitch for socialism. Why does it appeal and what exactly is it? Right. So historically, socialism has meant an economy in which the means of production are collectively owned, uh, the means of production, distribution and exchange. In practice, that has always meant a state-run economy. Uh, That is the way Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels used the term socialism. Now, over time, the, the, the meaning has become a bit more ambiguous because in some countries you have mainstream center-left parties that uh, were initially socialist but moved away from that over time and gave up on orthodox socialism, became just uh, conventional social democrats. Uh, in some cases, they've kept the word socialism, so that's why you sometimes get a, some confusion uh, around that. Um, I use it in the conventional sense, in, in the sense in which Marx and Engels used it, the way in which Lenin used it, um, meaning really a collectively run economy. And uh, I think it is justified to uh, use it in this classical conventional sense, because when we're talking about a socialist revival in Western countries today, that is clearly what we're talking about. We're not talking about a renewed interest in social democracy, but uh, these socialist movements that we see in various countries, certainly in Britain and the US, these are socialists in the proper sense, and they're clear about this. The more outspoken ones, the more outspoken uh, people within this movement are very clear about the fact that they don't want to just increase taxes and and public spending and be more like Sweden or Denmark, but that they want an economy which is, as they see it, democratically run, run by the people or run by the working class, in which we decide collectively what to produce, how to produce it, how to distribute it. And that is uh, the old socialist idea. That's what socialism was historically about and what it still technically means. And that is what the socialist revival uh, is about. It is about uh, people who say center-left social democracy, the kind of mainstream uh, social democracy that that we've had um, in in the 80s, 90s, uh, early 21st century. That is just not enough. We need to go far beyond that. We need to tackle 
the the class power of the capitalist class as they see it establish a completely new type of economy in which there is no private ownership of the means of production anymore and uh, that is the original meaning of socialism and we are now going back to that elevator pitch uh, why is it attractive um well it's it makes intuitive sense it sounds lovely in abstract terms if you listen to socialists describe the kind of economy they have in mind it all sounds rather lovely they say why, why shouldn't we all get together and decide collectively as a community how we should run our economy why shouldn't we collectively decide what to produce and how to distribute it and just decide things on a communal basis rather than as it is in a market economy where it feels like nobody really has any control over it the market feels uh, anarchic and and maybe chaotic we are at the behest of market forces that none of us can really control and it sounds just intuitively appealing the idea that we can consciously plan our economy it's just that in practice it never works out that way in practice it always leads to uh, the rule of a small elite and it, it is also always economically dysfunctional yeah and in new zealand we certainly have the um we have levels of inequality uh, that is a large motivational force for political parties on our left but i i suspect in terms of the advocates of socialism you're referring to they're not necessarily politicians they are think tanks in my experience they're certainly academics uh, i went to university studied communications um and I never realized before I studied communications how much um, communications theory was actually uh, socialism theory uh, applied to media yeah. and um, principles of journalism and so on. Doesn't surprise me. I, I guess with that in mind, the question is, how might these advocates of socialism be successful? Uh, how do they make transition from writing columns and writing academic journalists into actually convincing our our politicians uh, to pursue a system of collective ownership, as you purely describe it. Yeah, first of all, you're, you're quite right. I'm not uh, concentrating on politicians, but really on um, opinion formers, on people who have a disproportionate impact on, on public opinion, public intellectuals, people in the media sector, the educational sector, the arts and cultural sector. That's where the socialist revival is, is coming from. And uh, in so far as we see political responses to that, that's really more an echo of it, uh, that uh, you already have socialist ideas being quite popular, being uh, having become mainstream again and then you see some uh, you, you see an expression of that in day-to-day -day politics with socialist politicians suddenly becoming more famous but that's not the, the politicians the, the party political side isn't what I'm interested in that's why uh, as, as far as I'm concerned the fact that Bernie Sanders in the US or Jeremy Corbyn in Britain are uh, now on their way out. That's not really something I'm hugely interested in. For me, it's, it's, it's never been about um, these specific personalities, but it's about the wider infrastructure that enables those ideas to, to flourish and gain popularity. How has this happened? Well, there's, there's always been, it's always been dominant in, in academia, I guess, or at least in the humanities and in, in certain 
uh, sectors. It's just that until quite recently, it was associated with academics talking about some obscure theories and using obscure jargon that is incomprehensible to anyone outside of that. It was associated with sectarian fringe groups, small Maoist parties maybe with 12 members uh, arguing about some dispute uh, between between Mao Zedong and some and some detractor in in the seventies, something like that, something that's not of interest to to anyone else. It, it was seen as something a bit niche and obscure. And what's happened over the past five years is, or, or a bit more maybe, is that socialism has become cool. It's become hip to be a socialist. Yes. That is the big change. It's not. It's not that they've come up with a new interpretation of socialism, a new theory of socialism. None of that. It's it's the same socialism that it's always been. It's just that uh, it is now a fashion statement. And yes, I guess that's not totally new. There's always been the Che Guevara shirts uh, that uh, every other Western teenager uh, has always had. But it's, it's uh, what used to be the sort of teenage communism is now also hip among people in their 20s, 30s, 40s maybe even. And that is the big change. How exactly that has happened, I don't know, because that, that's always the problem with fashions. You can't really explain them well. It's, this is a, a bit like asking where does yes. a football chant come from, a football chant, uh, who, who was the first person to chant it? Nobody knows. It's just somehow suddenly there. I guess it's just a couple of, uh, in, the, in the way, fashion uh, spreads in music and clothing and other areas. You, you get some early adopters, some uh, fashionable high-status individuals adopting these beliefs, and then it becomes just fashionable to imitate that. So, Christian, we've established that these advocates of, of socialism have some pretty hefty academic credentials, and we've now established that it's you can be socialist and you can be cool. So the obvious question, Christian, is why are you not one of these socialists? Right. Uh, well, for for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, I do judge socialism predominantly by its outcomes, which is the one thing socialists hate like nothing else. Whenever you you bring up a, a real world example of an economy that was run in that way, whether that's the Soviet Union or later the rest of Central and Eastern Europe, or Maoist China, or nowadays Cuba and North Korea or more recently Venezuela as well, uh, any socialist will always say, oh, you just don't understand socialism. That isn't what we want. But what, what I show in the book is that all of these examples were, um, while they were in their prime, were very popular with Western intellectuals. They, they were always idolized uh, for, all of them were idolized for a while by Western intellectuals. It's just that when it becomes clear that these economies are total failures, that's when Western socialists suddenly start saying, oh, no, that was never socialism. You just don't understand socialism. Uh, what I'm arguing right. is that it isn't a coincidence that they've all turned out that way. Mm. So these advocates of socialism are how, how do we how do we see their advocacy? Is there particular movements in terms of policies that for which they're advocating that you think are quite literally socialist policies? Uh, and can you give an example of one and why we should actually be concerned about it? Or should we only be concerned because of some kind of domino theory which sees, sees other socialist ideas follow? 
Um, well, there's certainly large-scale nationalizations. That is a, a policy which is, is extremely popular uh, and which is also the centerpiece of uh, of, of any socialist program. So the, these uh, new or not-so-new socialist movements are uh, advocating uh, that the state should nationalize large parts of, the, that, that the government should nationalize large parts of the economy, that you would end up with a more or less state-run economy. And that is something that has gained popularity, again, mostly because they've uh, they've managed to divorce that from earlier experiences. It's it's not as if nationalization had never been tried. We've, we've had Britain had uh, lots of nationalized industries in in the 70s uh, i know i know new zealand had as well yes and uh, the experience with that hasn't been brilliant but uh, to that socialists are able to respond uh, in the same way as they respond to real world examples of entire socialist economies in the same way in which they say the soviet union wasn't really socialist or maoist china wasn't really socialist or north korea isn't really socialist in the same way they would say oh no the old fashioned nationalization new zealand in the 70s great britain in the 70s that's not what we're talking about we'll do it differently so it's the same that wasn't the real thing. The real thing has never been tried. You see this logic uh, applied on a smaller scale with regard to nationalizations. Certainly. And the problem with that is, is it's always easy to say, we'll do it differently. But if you ask them how, uh, if you ask them for a bit of detail, answer comes there none. Socialists usually define their ideas in terms of very vague and abstract aspirations. And that goes back to... Uh, your previous question, why am I not a socialist? I think it's just in principle impossible to run an economy in a democratic way. I think that just cannot be done. The effort of coordination would be so colossally high that uh, that is just something that you cannot do outside of very small groups with very simple economies. The, the, the example of uh, the only successful example of democratic socialism really is the Israeli kibbutz. A kibbutz in Israel with maybe 200, 300, 400 people and uh, focusing on just one or two basic economic activities, let's say agriculture, with the population the size of a small village. Yes, on that scale and with that simplicity, they can have democratic socialism. And they are in, in that voluntary setting, I have absolutely no problem with it. Mm. The kibbutzim in Israel seem, seem to work well enough, and I wish them every success. I have absolutely no, no issue with that. The problem is that you cannot scale up what works on a small scale. Once your economy reaches a certain size and complexity, once you have not just growing potatoes, but uh, having complex capital goods, let's say uh, a car industry or a, an aviation industry where you have intermediary goods and, and capital goods and, and roundabout processes of production, longer supply chains uh, and much greater levels of complexity, it just becomes completely impossible to run that in a democratic way, to deliberately plan that. And that's when we need to rely on market mechanisms, because market mechanisms are just an extremely effective way of coordinating activities. Uh, if you go to a supermarket, you will, without really realizing it, 
be responding to numerous price changes. You will notice something has become more expensive, so you buy less of it, or you don't buy it at all anymore. You uh, go for, you look for a substitute, or you look for a way of of economizing on that good. And in that way, you don't need to know why that is, why that price has gone up. You don't need to know whether that's because of um, a bad harvest somewhere in in the country where that that good is, is is sourced from, or whether that's because of something else. You don't need to know the reasons yes. for all that. You don't need that that extensive knowledge. You just see a price change. You react to it. That's it. And you make uh, thousands of 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 adaptations on a daily basis in that way. With very little knowledge, you can re- you can act rationally in the economic sphere because market prices just beautifully coordinate the economy, and you cannot replace that by by democratic debate. Yes. In practice, it always leads to a small elite making all the decisions. You, you, you can only have an expert committee. And that's the reason why all these uh, socialist examples ended up that way as technocratic societies. That was not a deliberate choice. It's not that, let's say, Lenin came to power and after the Russian Revolution uh, just said, okay, I want to establish a horrible dictatorship. That's not what he had in mind. He really thought you could run... The, the Soviet economy in a democratic way. He just learned quickly that, that is, uh, an economy doesn't run itself in that way and that technocratic rule is the only way to make that work, yes. work in inverted we, commas. In New Zealand's history, we've certainly had an opportunity to, to learn some lessons um, that actually gel with the examples you gave. You mentioned manufacturing industries and aviation industries. Well, before our free market reforms in the 1980s, we, we did attempt to manufacture vehicles in New Zealand, which nowadays would seem like an absurd proposition considering uh, we were a country of 4 million people. Well, obviously, the vehicles weren't very good. Right. Uh, and we eventually uh, removed our tariffs on imports, stopped attempting to make our own vehicles, and now we have cheap Japanese cars that actually work. Yeah, brilliant. And. Uh- Despite those lessons, um, we now do see people calling for the nationalisation of, well, our aviation sector, uh, which is meant to be temporary in response to this current uh, economic challenge they're facing. We also see calls for nationalisation of media. Now, if the government can't build a car well, how can it handle running an airline or deciding what counts as public good journalism? Well, it can't, of course. You have to rely on on the market process, and this is a process that you cannot plan and predict. Uh, you mentioned New Zealand in the 80s shifting to other sectors. This is, in hindsight, is a success story. Um, New, New Zealand uh, prospered during that time and uh, just shifted that activity into other sectors. But, of course, nobody could have predicted at the time exactly how the New Zealand economy would adapt, I, I guess, at the time, and, and these uh, people must have had these debates, if somebody had said, right, if, if our car manufacturing closes down, where are these people going to work? And uh, a free trade proponent at the time wouldn't have been able to, to say precisely, well, this industry will pop up or that industry will pop up. These are things that you just have to leave to the market, to the spontaneous process of the market and uh, it cannot be planned and uh, but 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 there is still attractiveness of, of planning it just appeals to us intuitively yes. the the idea that you you can be consciously in in control of something it's just counterintuitive to, to say 
no, at that scale, that cannot be done. Yes. And we have to accept a level of uncertainty here. Another of the examples that you gave in your previous answer was, well, I, I think it was in the context of a supermarket, you talked about how prices are set. Well, the the high prices on certain goods can be a, a strong motivator for, again, that sense of control. And I wondered if you might have sympathies in some of the more extreme cases. For example, housing uh, in New Zealand, at least prior to COVID-19, one of our largest political uh, issues of debate was the cost of housing mm-hmm. and the cost of rent, especially. Now, in New Zealand, and I understand also in Europe, there are occasional calls for a kind of a control on the price of housing, particularly a control on the price of rent. Yes. Firstly, do you concede that there are actually inequalities here, that home ownership is concentrated uh, among a, a wealthy and often an older uh, group of individuals. So do the do young socialists have a point in that sense? Yes, they have. I think socialists are sometimes quite good at pointing out problems. They're just terrible at coming up with solutions. But um, it is absolutely true. Some Western countries, certainly Britain, and yes, I, I, I think New Zealand uh, has, is in a similar situation there, have experienced rising housing costs um, for whether that's buying or renting. Uh, prices have, have gone up massively. And yes, of course, that, that causes a lot of social problems then. that We, we see that here in Britain, it, it leads to, for example, people being priced out of the most attractive parts of the country. It would make perfect sense for more people to relocate to the more prosperous parts of the country. Uh, London, Oxford, Cambridge, the, the southeast, where where the well-paid jobs are. And uh, when, but when most of your salary is consumed by high rents, that is not an option anymore. We do see lots of problems in, in that sense. Socialists are quite right to point it out. And that's, that's a failure of the, of the mainstream right here to do something about that, or at least articulate an idea how that could be tackled here. The, the mainstream center right has been too reliant on support from the people who benefit from that. Because of course, if you make something more expensive, it does benefit someone, namely the people who already have that good, whatever it is, in this case, housing. And in, in our case here, house prices have almost tripled in real terms since the mid-90s. And some people have done very well out of that. It is quite possible to own a house in London. I'll ask you, on, on the record, how would a capitalist approach a an issue where there does seem to be fundamental inequality? And let's use, let's use the housing example as, an, uh, as, a, as a starter. Yes. Well, the housing issue in principle, isn't that complicated. It really is all about how responsive the supply side of the housing market is. How easy is it to build new housing, to get permission to build new housing in high demand areas? And there we see a lot of variation between between countries, but also uh, within countries, depending on when, when they have federal systems when planning laws are a matter of local or regional governments, we see a lot of variation. Uh, not all Western countries have a housing crisis. In fact, only only a couple of them do. And uh, the ones that don't have this problem or the regions uh, within other countries that don't have that problem are the ones that make it easy enough to build new housing. It really is as simple as that. That's the reason why within the US, for example, you get lots of regional variation. 
uh, housing policy is a, a state and local matter. And you see that uh, states like Texas, where you can build more or less anywhere and where, where it isn't particularly hard to get building permits, don't have that problem, even in areas where, which experience a high population growth, such as the city of Houston, population growing at, uh, at fairly high rates. But nonetheless, house prices have been constant. That's because they, they just built new housing and that's that's that. Whereas in places like California, where they have much more restrictive building and planning laws don't see that supply-side response and therefore they see rising house prices and and rising rents. But it really is just about looking around, uh, looking at the places that, uh, that, that don't have that problem, looking at the places where housing costs remain stable over time and ask, what are they doing right? Let's learn from them. And there's Texas is one example. Japan would be another one. The city of Tokyo has also experienced population growth over the past 20 years or so. And in their case, mostly, I think, because of internal migration, uh, people moving from from, uh, smaller cities and and rural areas to the capital. And um, but nonetheless, in Tokyo, house prices have remained more or less the same in real terms as they were 20 years ago. That's because they make it easy to build new housing, and that, that's all it takes. You've just outlined quite a rational and level-headed response to an issue of inequality. Uh, however, I guess my next question is one around communication. How can that rational argument win out against an argument with a deep emotional appeal? How do we communicate these ideas in a way that will beat an argument that appeals to the sense of blame? Uh, From a socialist perspective, you can blame the greedy landlords. Uh, You have a sense of weak people who are being oppressed by a more powerful class. How can we frame rational capitalist arguments in a sense that resonates emotionally? Yeah, that's always been the issue. Um, Free markets, uh, support for free markets, support for capitalism is just counterintuitive. It's hard to put that into a rhetoric that appeals emotionally as much as socialism does. And uh, I I guess that cannot really be changed. That's just, to some extent, uh, inherent in the ideas. That's also the reason why very few free market liberals uh, start out as free market liberals. It's it's an acquired taste. It's something that you learn over time, but nobody just naturally grows up to be a free marketeer. If you ask somebody who believes in free markets, how did you come to hold those beliefs? Nobody ever says, oh, it's just so- somehow what I've always believed. Uh, b- people will always tell you, I used to be a, so- a socialist, or I used to be a social democrat, I used to be this, I used to be that. And then I stumbled across something, a book or somebody who told me about this or that theory. It's always something that, that you learn later. It's 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 very much an acquired taste, whereas if somebody is, um, is, is on the left, you wouldn't even ask them that question. You wouldn't even ask, how did you come to be a left-winger? How did you come to be a socialist? Because most of the time, the answer is just, well, I've always always been a sort of a socialist. Yeah, it's more that they already start with those intuitions, and then at some point they come across maybe something, maybe an, a, a Marx text or something written by a, by a modern day Marxist, and uh, they articulate, and then they find a way of articulating what they what they already believe. But it's not that that really persuaded them. It's more that that provided them with 
a justification, a way of rationalizing and expressing what they already intuitively believe. Yeah. So yeah, that that is an issue for us. I guess we can't completely solve that, but it does help if you have positive examples that you can point to. Yes. And that's the the one thing that uh, that that our side has and that the socialists don't. That's the one thing they can't answer if somebody says, "Okay, where has this ever worked?" That's the, the question that a socialist hates more than any other. Um a free market here doesn't have that problem uh, which which whatever the policy area you you can almost always find at least one positive example. And that is a bit of a rhetorical trump card. That that's still a fairly abstract argument. If you if you tell someone in New Zealand that uh, actually the housing market of Houston, Texas is okay, yeah, that's still a bit remote. It's still far away. I guess it it, it won't. It, it's not going to be a massive debate winner. But if it still means that you have a practical example, and, and you can you can say, well, okay, I I sympathize uh, with. The, the problems that, that you're highlighting there. But look, there are these places that don't have that problem. Um, so why don't we just do that? And Houston is certainly not a socialist people's republic. It's not that they've solved this problem somehow through massive public housing and, and social housing, but uh, in in market-compatible ways. Pointing to these uh, relative success stories and just making that more more tangible, putting that maybe in in numbers. You can you can you can maybe even just uh, during a presentation uh, show a couple of examples. What, uh, what the same amount of money um, in uh, purchasing power parity, just the terms, would buy you in New Zealand yes. and what it would buy you in in Houston, and then then take it from there. Yes. Um- I, I guess there may be some hope. You, you talked about this idea of socialism and as having a, what sounded like an instinctive appeal. Um, I do hope that for every latent socialist out there, there's also a latent capitalist, someone who may not necessarily think of themselves as supporting free markets, but who does live uh, the day-to-day reality of business and has probably experienced the ways that uh, government intervention can interfere with their own prosperity. So it's it's in that spirit, I think, that we record these podcasts. This is this is taxpayer talk, the taxpayers' union podcast. Um, the idea that there are people who who instinctively understand why business works uh, and where wealth comes comes from, uh, and that by articulating some of these ideas, we may encourage those people to speak up for themselves and actually become advocates for a system uh, that is opposed to socialism. Yeah, socialism being a system that already has so many uh, very, very much more vocal advocates in public. Yes, it's about making that leap. A lot of people have negative experiences with the public sector, with government intervention. It's just that socialists are very good at obscuring that link and, and creating the impression that their kind of socialism will be completely unlike anything that's ever been there. It's about making clear that, no, they won't. It, it will just be the same state and the same the same socialism all over again. There's nothing new under the sun. The book is Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies. It's written by Dr. Christian Nemitz of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Thank you again so much, Christian. No, my pleasure. <laughs>